0: Hi everyone, welcome again to Logical Bible Study. This is the Catholic podcast where we take an in-depth look at scripture and in particular we do an exegesis, a verse-by-verse analysis of the gospel readings that you would hear at today's Mass. So if you went to Mass today, you would hear this really interesting reading from Luke chapter 11 and that's what we will have a go at today. So Luke chapter 11 verses 14 to 23. Jesus was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. But when the devil had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the people were amazed. But some of them said, It is through Beelzebul, the prince of devils, that he casts out devils. Others asked him, as a test, for a sign from heaven. But knowing what they were thinking, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for ruin, and a household divided against itself collapses, so too with Satan. If he is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Since you assert that it is through Beelzebul that I cast out devils. Now, if it is through Beelzebul that I cast out devils, through whom do your own experts cast them out? Let them be your judges then. But if it is through the finger of God that I cast out devils, then know that the kingdom of God has overtaken you. So long as a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he is attacks and defeats him, the stronger man takes away all the weapons he relied on and shares out his spoil. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So a fascinating reading today about devils and about Beelzebul, the prince of devils, and about the kingdom of God coming on the people. So let's start by asking what the context is. So Jesus is on the way from Galilee up to Jerusalem, and he's doing ministry along the way. We're starting at verse 14. It says, Jesus was casting out a devil or a demon. Now we know from earlier in the Gospels that Jesus has the power to cast out demons. He's been doing that for a while now. And this particular demon is dumb. The Greek word here, kophos, which is translated dumb, can actually mean deaf as well. Or it could even be someone that's both, a deaf mute. So we'll go with the lectionary translation here and assume that the person is dumb. So the demon is causing this person to be unable to speak. This itself shows that demons have the power to cause quite severe physical conditions in some cases. Some physical conditions can be attributed to demons. Now, it's likely that this man who is possessed has been brought to other exorcists because they did have other exorcists at the time, but it hadn't worked. So now they bring him to Jesus. So the devil comes out of the dumb man and he speaks. Now, we're not told how exactly Jesus does the exorcism here, whether he uses certain words or if he lays his hands on them. We're not told that, just that he is able to cast out the demon. And the people were amazed, which makes sense because presumably a demon which can cause... Uh, dumbness is probably quite a strong demon and no other exorcists have been able to successfully cast out the demon but here Jesus can do it so the people are amazed now at this point Matthew's version of the story adds in some interesting information it says that the crowds say to themselves nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel so in the Jewish tradition there's people who can heal lepers there's curing the sick raising the dead and expelling demons, of course, that has been done during Israel's history, but never quite like this in a sudden sequence of incidents by one man who is announcing the coming of God's kingdom, this person who showed up, who can do all of these amazing things all at once. So never has Israel seen anything like this verse 15, but some of them said now Matthew's version of this account makes it clear that it's primarily the Pharisees who were saying the things that we're about to hear. So, it's not the crowds in general, it's apparently the Pharisees. And they say, it is through Beelzebul, the prince of devils. So, let's stop and talk about who Beelzebul is. It's the name of a Canaanite god in the Old Testament. And it roughly means the, pr- the prince god, or the prince of the master's palace, or something like that. So, you can see that it's mentioned specifically in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. Beelzebul is one of the Canaanite gods that some of the Israelites... Ended up worshiping. The word Beelzebul itself derives from two other words: so Baal, which means Lord, and Zebul, which means exalted dwelling. So when you put Baal and Zebul together, you get Beelzebul, prince, the prince god. So to the Jews at this time, basically all false gods are considered to be demons. We've lost sight of this in in a lot of our theology as well, but certainly at the time of Jesus, the Jews believed that most false gods that other religions worshipped were in fact real beings, but they are demons. So they understood Beelzebul, the prince god, to basically be the prince of demons, or roughly equivalent to what we would consider today to be the devil. They would call that Beelzebul. So in here they accuse Jesus, they say it is through Beelzebul, the prince of devils, that he casts out devils. So they're saying that Jesus is actually possessed by Beelzebul, and that's why he can cast out demons. We know that the devil is able to perform supernatural works, and the Jews know that as well. They know that the the demons and the devil can do quite miraculous things, particularly sorcery. So the crowd deduces that Jesus must be doing sorcery, he must be empowered by the devil here. Notice that the Pharisees or the crowd acknowledge that Jesus is doing something supernatural here. They can see he's got something special, something supernatural, but they're not willing to accept that it's from God. They think it's from Satan or Beelzebul. Verse 16, others in the crowd asked him as a test for a sign from heaven. So there's another group in the crowd, probably Pharisees again, who want Jesus to prove that he really is sent from God by doing a miraculous sign. They don't believe he's from God, so they don't think he'll be able to do it. So they're testing him. It's a kind of skepticism. Now, Jesus has already been doing miraculous signs. You would think that by now they've seen enough miraculous signs to prove that he really is who he claims he is, including the one he just did. He just cast out a pretty significant demon. But this group of people, probably the Pharisees, they want something blindingly obvious. They want an on-the-spot, miraculous, cosmic phenomenon. So it's kind of like they're saying, force us to believe so that we will not have to trust in you or change our hearts. So they're really asking to do it in a way that will mean that they don't have to have genuine faith. They just want to be shocked into it. They want a full, complete 100% proof that's going to force them to believe. That Really, they're asking for the easy option here. Even then, if, imagine if Jesus did do some miraculous sign, they probably still attribute it to the devil. This group of Pharisees or the crowds here who are skeptical, it's kind of reminiscent of an incident in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, where God is dealing with a very skeptical group of Israelites. And he says, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they refuse to believe me despite all the signs I have performed among them? So Jesus is probably thinking pretty similar to God in that Numbers situation. Verse 17, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, notice this, Jesus is able to read multiple people's minds at once, and he knows what they're thinking. And at this point, he realizes the crowd has two main objections. There's one group who think he's empowered by Beelzebul, or the devil, and there's another group that are asking for a sign. He's going to deal with both of those objections in turn. Now, in today's passage, he's just dealing with the first one, the charge that he's empowered by the devil. He doesn't get to the second one in today's passage, but he will eventually. Now, the other gospels tell us that at this point, Jesus actually calls the Pharisees over to teach them. So he gives them a a teaching opportunity, and he's going to give them a kind of mini parable about a divided house to help them understand what is really going on in these exorcisms. He wants them to understand it's not beelzebub. So he gives them this mini parable about a divided house. Here's how he starts in verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is heading for ruin and a household divided against itself collapses. So he uses the analogy of a house and a kingdom and the same point is made in both. If there's internal fighting amongst a kingdom or a house, well then the kingdom or the house won't last long. It's not going to be able to stand. That makes sense. And of course, they might be quite familiar with this because they were under the control of the Romans at this time in history, and they would be quite familiar with the internal struggles that go on between the Roman emperors. Verse 18, Jesus says So too with Satan, if he is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Since you assert that it is through Beelzebub that I cast out devils. So Jesus introduces Satan here. Uh, that's the word he's going to use here for the devil notice that jesus here clearly teaches that satan has his own kingdom he actually uses that word he says how can satan's kingdom stand so from this verse we learn that jesus uh, that satan genuinely does have a kingdom and of course that's what satan said in one of his temptations he said i can give you all the kingdoms of the world now when he says to the to the pharisees or the crowd here how could his kingdom stand if it is divided against himself It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is his kingdom would not be able to stand. That would not be possible if there was fighting going on within his kingdom. So Jesus' point here is if Satan was being forced to get rid of his own demons, or if Beelzebul was getting rid of his own demons and Beelzebul works for Satan, it would not be a very strong kingdom. But we know that Satan's kingdom is strong and it is still standing, so that can't be right. So he's giving them kind of logical reasoning here to help them show that, look, obviously I'm not casting out demons using Satan's power because Satan is very strong and his kingdom is strong. And if I was casting out demons in his name, his kingdom would no longer be strong. And that doesn't make sense. So he's trying to get them to realize that he is not acting in the name of Satan. Why would Satan do that to himself? Basically, verse 19 now, if it is through Beelzebul that I cast out devils, through whom do your own experts cast them out? Some translations have this as your sons, through whom do your sons cast them out? So here, Jesus clearly teaches that some of the Jewish leaders in his time did have the power to do exorcisms. That's interesting. We often don't realize that, but there apparently were some Jewish leaders that could do it. But we know from other places in the gospel that even those exorcists can't do do exorcisms on their own authority alone. They have to call on the name of God or the name of a prophet, whereas Jesus can do it on his own authority. So Jesus' point is that, look, if you want to say that I'm empowered by Satan when I cast out demons, you're going to have to say the same thing about your own experts. And that's another really good point that Jesus makes there. And Jesus finishes that section by saying, let them be your judges then. And then he goes to verse 20. But if it is through the finger of God that I cast out devils, then know that the kingdom of God has overtaken you. A better translation there might be, the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is a profound teaching. If it is through the finger of God that I cast out devils, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here we learn that Satan's kingdom does have dominion over the world, but through Jesus' incarnation and his teaching and his healings, the kingdom of God is breaking into the world at the time that Jesus is saying this. The fact that Satan's works are clearly being undone through the ministry of Jesus, that should indicate to the crowds that the kingdom of God, which they've waited for for a long time, that has now obviously arrived in the person of Jesus. He's saying to them, look, if I'm casting out demons, this is a strong sign that the kingdom of God has arrived and it's turning back, it's destroying the works of Satan. In a sense, this is also a warning for the Pharisees to get on the right side of the battle. He's saying the kingdom of of God is here. Whose kingdom are you going to belong to? Some scholars think there might be links here to Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. Remember that famous scene where uh, the... Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate all the miracles that Moses is doing. Eventually, at the end of Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, Pharaoh's magicians finally confess that their power to do sorcery is weaker than God's power. And in fact, in that phrase, they actually use the phrase, the finger of God, the same phrase Jesus uses here. Interestingly, Matthew's version of this phrase, he identifies the finger of God as the spirit of God. So those two phrases are apparently interchangeable. What's the finger of God? How does, what's God's action in the world? It's the spirit of God. That's what Jesus is casting out demons using. Jesus is now going to give another mini parable to help them understand how the kingdom of God is overpowering the kingdom of Satan. So he's giving them an insight into the mechanics here. Verse 21, so long as a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are undisturbed. So the mental picture here he's painting is that if a man is guarding his possessions diligently, a strong man, well then no one is going to be able to to steal his goods. Verse 22, but when someone stronger than he attacks and defeats him, the stronger man takes away all the weapons he relied on and shares out his spoil. So the image here is an even stronger man comes along, defeats the man in the palace and takes his goods. What's going on here? Jesus doesn't make it entirely clear, but we can work it out logically. Jesus is saying that Satan is the strong man guarding his possessions. So he's the one who has a palace and what would his possessions be? Humans. Satan's possessions are humans and that's what he wants to guard. But Jesus is the even stronger man who has come to claim the goods of Satan. So he's come to claim people back into the kingdom. And that makes sense in context, doesn't it? Because by Jesus performing these exorcisms, Satan's kingdom is being weakened. More people are being transferred from Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom. That's quite a nice analogy, isn't it? People moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's actually developed more later in the New Testament. If you look particularly at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, there's that language of Jesus transferring us to his kingdom from Satan's kingdom. Some scholars think there might also be an additional reference here to a passage in the Old Testament or a couple of passages in Isaiah. When Jesus here talks about plundering his goods and dividing the spoils of the strong man, there's similar language used in Isaiah 49, verses 24 to 25, and Isaiah 53, verse 12. There's some descriptions there of the coming Messiah, how he's going to kind of divide the spoils. And so some think that that's kind of fulfilled here in the way that Jesus talks about how he's going to break into Satan's kingdom and take the spoils for himself. So that's an interesting possible connection. Well, here we have a clear teaching that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. Some Christian cults don't agree with that. Some think that Jesus and Satan are equal. Well, here Jesus himself, in his own parable, describes himself as stronger than Satan. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. In fact, John the Baptist uses the same Greek word when he says earlier, one mightier than I is coming. In chapter 3, verse 16, John the Baptist says Jesus is mightier than I. Same Greek word. Now, Mark's version, if you look at Mark's version of this same uh, passage, and it's important to compare across the Synoptic Gospels where possible, Mark's version seems a little more precise. When Jesus describes this mini parable in Mark's version, he describes it as involving two phases. First, the strong man is bound, and then his goods are plundered. Whereas in Luke's version, we have a shorter version, which doesn't talk about the binding. But Mark's version here seems to be a bit more precise, and you can have a read of that. It's in Mark chapter 3. We get to verse 23, and Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, this is clearly a metaphor of some sort. It could be an agricultural image referring to harvesting, as in those who don't help with the harvest are depicted as doing the opposite of harvesting, which is scattering grain. Or maybe it refers to gathering and scattering people. It could, either option. But either way, it's a metaphor that means this, basically. Jesus says, if you're not helping me, then you are completely opposed to me. So Jesus says that while he's on earth, There's no neutral. You're either with him or you're against him. Now, in this context, it's a reference to the Pharisees who are opposing Jesus. By their opposition to Jesus, they're actually furthering the kingdom of Satan rather than the kingdom of God. Those are the only two kingdoms in effect. You're either part of one or the other. That verse would be quite striking for Luke's original readers. He who is not with me is against me. So it would have forced them to think about which side they are on. And we should think about that too. Are we part of the kingdom of God? ...or the kingdom of Satan. Both of those kingdoms are still on earth today, although the kingdom of God is expanding. Now, in Matthew and Mark's version of this same story, this is the point at which Jesus goes on to describe the unforgivable sin. But in Luke's version, it's actually in the next chapter, in chapter 12, so we'll talk about that when we get there. So, Jesus is now going to continue the theme of casting out demons. And in particular, he's about to explain to the crowd why it's important that the kingdom of Satan... Is replaced with something else. And you can hear that next section of text on Friday of week 27 of ordinary time. So you might like to go back through the podcast list to find that episode, Friday of week 27 of ordinary time. That's the end of our text for today. Let's turn to the Catechism to see what it has to say about this passage. Paragraph 700, this is in Symbols of the Holy Spirit. And here we learn that the finger can be used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, interestingly. Paragraph 700 says, It is by the finger of God that Jesus casts out demons. If God's law was written on tablets of stone by the finger of God, then the letter from Christ entrusted to the care of the apostles is written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The hymn Veni Creator Spiritus invokes the Holy Spirit as the finger of the Father's right hand. So that language of the finger of God is actually used all throughout Scripture, and paragraph 700 attempts to bring all those references together. Paragraph 385, this is a really interesting one. It's in the section about the fall of man and the problem of evil. And here's what it says. God is infinitely good and all his works are good. Yet no one can escape the experience of suffering or the evils in nature which seem to be linked to the limitations proper to creatures, and above all to the question of moral evil. Where does evil come from? I sought whence evil comes and there was no solution, said St. Augustine, and his own painful quest would only be resolved by his conversion to the living God. For the mystery of lawlessness is clarified only in the light of the mystery of our religion. The revelation of divine love in Christ manifested at the same time the extent of evil and the superabundance of grace. We must therefore approach the question of the origin of evil by fixing the eyes of our faith on him who alone is its conqueror. Quite an amazing paragraph there about the theology of the fall and the problem of evil. And that last part of it where it talks about in order to understand the extent of evil, we need to understand the superabundance of grace. It actually references here uh, Luke chapter 11 where it talks about Jesus casting out evil and putting the kingdom of God back into people. So hopefully you found those paragraphs interesting. I'll include those in the show notes as always. Thanks for listening today. If you thought today's uh, text was interesting and the exegesis was useful, then please share it around with people so more and more people can come to know God's word more deeply. Thanks and we'll continue in the coming days.